Maybe we need to get the books, boys. Welcome to Books Boys, live from the Grand Library, the Dean and Lee Boy Eller. <laughs> I couldn't find the original files. And read your tickets. We're using the Anna Karenina method here. It is a holiday because it's uh, Christmas. Yay! He's Alex. Hello there. I'm Dean. Alex is cuddling Alfred. Yay! We are the Books Boys. This is the Books Boys show. Get it? Buy it. Books. If the audio quality is mental, uh, we apologize. We have no idea what's going on. We're trying for the first time ever, after three years of Books Boys, to actually do the full episode in the same room. <laughs> yes, um, and we might have the mic quality to do it. We might not. We yeah. tested, and it was fine. But, you know, third time's the charm to get it all wrong. <laughs> yeah, I have done one or two short 20-minute bonus things on Patreon where we've just shared a mic. But for this, we decided to do a proper setup with multiple mics and a program to like mix in the, the sound effects and everything. So, who knows what's happening. Also, Alfred is cuddling with me. I'm not cuddling with Alfred. Ah, okay. It's because he's been lonely. He oh, says. yeah. He's got his antlers on. Christmas Alfred is the best of all the Alfreds. Yes. But here we are. We're recording between Christmas and New Year's, and we're going to try to keep it, I think, pretty brief uh, for a change. we got a simple episode. <laughs> yeah. So, I, Alex, you've read uh, one book. I read a book this time instead of a play. Yay! No, I have read five books. <laughs> Two of them are kind of... Like an immediate, a dual release kind of book, an immediate sequel that came out together. So it's really four books, you know. Well, does studying for a quantum mechanics exam count? Yes. So well, I will the, be going over that today as well then. Good. For the next 30 minutes, we're just going to hear all about that. And that'll be fantastic. So first I'm going to have to define a wave function, all right? <laughs> and then we can get to degeneracies. I think we already lost everyone. Yes, we've reduced... Can we go to negative listeners? I don't know. Can we reduce from... So, we're going to um, do our last episode of 2023, and I'm going to start by talking about... So, I, you know, you've been telling me for a while, read something different, you know? Don't just the same things over and over again. So, okay. So, I'm going to read Wilkie Collins. Yes, that thing that you've never read before. What's um, in the book? It's a fantastic cover here. It's called The Dead Secret. Um, Wilkie Collins, Dickens Deputy out in full force here so it's in the 1800s it's split into several sub books i think five or six and you read the first book and then there's a 15 year jump before the rest of the novel so basically what happens is um this lady is dying and she calls in her servant and says look you've always been a friend to me as well as a servant uh not instead of but as well as (laughs) And what I would like is for you to sign this document that says you were an accomplice in something that we did together. Um, and then give the note to my husband. I can't tell him, but if I, if I write it down, you can tell him. And it's like, well, she's an accomplice in whatever you've done. Would she tell him? <laughs> How can you make her tell him? So she says, I'll make you sign it that you're an accomplice and swear an oath. And if you break your oath, I will come back and haunt you from the grave. Hmm. Which I guess in the 1800s was a genuine threat. (laughs) So she's very scared about this. 
And for some reason, rather than just making her swear to tell the husband, she makes her swear three things. Thing number one, you will not take this note out of the house. I swear, that's fine. Thing number two, you will not destroy the note. Okay. Thing number three, you will give the note to... And she dies. Oh. So now the lady's like, right, I can't take it away or destroy it or I'll get haunted from beyond the grave. But technically, I didn't actually swear to give it to your husband. So I'll just hide it in the house. Right. And do we know what this note says yet? We find out a lot later. Okay. Near the end. Yeah. It's not a long book per se, but it is about 360, 70 pages. Um, So what happens is the note's hidden. This woman is there to care for this little five-year-old girl who lives with them. And there's the husband and some servants and things. So they go to the father and he asks. She, basically, she's so scared about this note that she runs away and they never see her again. <laughs> but she's hidden it in the house. Now, this is not a, you know, a two up, two down. They're living in a massive mansion in the countryside with um, hundreds of rooms and different wings of the house and all this kind of stuff. So she hides it somewhere. Now, what happens is we jump 15 years and the father dies. And the daughter's all grown up, and she's marrying a gentleman. And they use their inheritance from the father to buy the old family home. They have to buy it? Somehow they've got to buy it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Okay. The banker somehow got a hold of it. Ah, Yeah, that's... I don't know why, but somehow they've got to buy it. Um, But there is an old uncle, and the old uncle doesn't like them. And the reason he doesn't like them is that the mother was a play actress, which was a lower class thing back then. So he won't speak to anyone in the family. Still kind of is, unfortunately. I, I like the theater. <laughs> oh yeah, I do too. This is why I added unfortunately. At the yeah, but they, it's a very important profession. So he won't speak to his niece because her mother was an actress. So the father dies, and what happens is they look. This couple are getting married, and they have a little a little daughter. Um, but something weird happens. The way they discuss going back to the old house, it's kind of. Like a bit of trepidation, a bit of fear. They've not been there in so long. So many wings of the house are like locked up and decaying. It's one of these old, you know, countryside Mm -hmm. mansions. No one's been in for years and they don't even know how to get into the rooms. There's bundles and bundles of keys everywhere and all this kind of stuff, you know. And um, this girl, by the way, her name is Sarah Leeson. She hasn't been seen in years. So she now returns. But the way she does it is she's kind of disguised. So she sees this couple... And they're talking about going to the house and everything. And she's like, cool, can I babysit your kid? So they hire her to babysit the kid. She creeps over to the mother and whispers in her ear, do not go into the myrtle room. And then and the tries to like pass it off as a dream. And the mom's like, so you're fired immediately from babysitting my kid. All right. Is this the beginning of the haunting of Hill House? <laughs> So they discuss it with the father and what happened. And they're like, cool, we've got to investigate this murder room, of course. And he's like, but are you not scared? And there's a really sexist line where the mum is like, well, I don't know if you've ever met a woman, but I'm a woman. So she's told me do not go into the Myrtle room. The first thing I shall do is go into the Myrtle room. Yeah. Um, But of course, no one knows what room that is. And none of the servants know which room that is. And, you know, the names have been scratched off the rooms and the keys have been lost. And, you know, they're all damp and moldy and floorboards falling in and all this kind of stuff. So the the house is in, in bad state. The girl then goes to stay with her German uncle who then helped Max, who has a music box given to his brother by Mozart, and he just carries it around all the time. <laughs> Lovely. 
And they go to the old house and they talk to the servants. They try to get some information about the Myrtle Room. So we now discover, slight spoiler here, they don't know, obviously, that the woman looking after the baby was, was this woman, Sarah Leeson. We, we find that out. And she goes with her mum. They pretend, like, hey, servants, can we just look around your mansion? And they're like, cool, come in and look around. We'll, we'll figure out what's going on here. We're suspicious of you, but we'll get some information and report it back. They do not manage originally to find the note. They get kicked out. They're very suspicious of Max because he's a foreigner and they're racist old English people. But lots of shenanigans kind of ensue and they, you know, she pretends to faint at one point in the house and all this kind of weird stuff. Um, I'm going to, I don't normally do spoilers, but I kind of want to this time. Um, essentially what happens is what the note says is that the mother was never the mother in the first place. The servant who's been chasing on them all is the mother of the child. Wow. Okay. So because she hit the child out of wedlock with a boy who treated her badly and then died, they didn't want to spoil her reputation. So she stayed on as the servant and looked after the child that was her own and pretended it wasn't hers. I mean, nowadays this book wouldn't happen because you'd just be like, cool, you had a kid. The end. You know? I do kind of like those types of stories. There's one recently uh, I was watching. It's animated uh, Apothecary Diaries, mm. and they kind of get into that. It's like the one of the concubines' uh, child is switched with the emperor's child. Mm. And I do actually really like those types of stories in a way. It's kind of nice, you know, and I love the melodrama of everything. Because, the, I mean, honestly, I've written down in one of my notes, what I, which I reviewed earlier, imagine being Sarah's friend. Because all she does the whole book is like, I had such a hard life, don't worry, it'll be at an end soon, like she's waiting to die. It's the most depressing character, and she keeps talking to her uncle like, ah, oh, the misery will be will be at an end, <laughs> me who has had such a hard, trodden life. And it's like, okay, give over already. <laughs> because I can't see that she has had that hard a life. Okay, her boyfriend mistreated her, but he died when he was like 22 or 25 or something, so that can't have been going on for a very long time. 15 years have passed. You know, so I don't know what she's been doing in the interval. Nothing from the signs of it. Then she says to her uncle, like, I cannot go back with you. I must go away and roam around the town, the countryside again, because it's not safe for me to go back with you. They'll be after us. I think she's taken it a bit too seriously. (laughs) And of course, eventually the husband and wife find the note and they realize everything. And they do the right thing. They say, if you're not really the daughter, we should never have inherited the money that allowed us to buy the house. Oh. And because of their Victorian morals, they can't accept the house. So they contact the old uncle, and they say the money should be yours, and therefore the house should be yours. But they paid for the house at the beginning, right? With money that they got from inheriting. Uh, okay. So they lose everything, and now they're just poor and homeless, basically. But the old uncle, he has this thing where he's super rich, uh, and he doesn't want to give his money. He has no friends. He doesn't like anyone. He lives like in the middle of nowhere by himself with one servant who he hates, and um, he doesn't want to help them. And he says, you better not come back and try to get my money and try to get my house. You've just told me that it's mine. Which they had no need to tell him, by the way. No. Yeah. <laughs> uh, once they discovered the note. They did the right thing. And he's like, damn you, you're not getting the money and everything. And then once they're like, cool, damn you, we don't want your money. We don't want your house. We want to live, you know, honestly. Then he's like, ah, you don't need the money or want it. You shall have the money. <laughs> okay, so it's the Willy Wonka thing. Yeah. I was... <laughs> thinking that's how it might go. So he eventually lets them have the money, but it's kind of funny that 
the whole book, he's a miser and he's very scroogey and everything. I, I like that type of character mm. as well. It's like, oh, I am not easy to please. I don't like most people, but you won me over. Just you and this other person. That's it. Yeah, and they they do they do win him over, and it, it's kind of nice. I feel like you have to spoil the ending of this book for it to kind of be nice or to make any sense. If I just said like, yeah, they chased them around this house, and then we don't know what the note says, it's like, well, who cares, you know? Yeah. But it's the twist is obviously that she's the mum. And of course, because it's a Victorian book, she discovers that it's her mum, and then that night the mum dies, you know? <laughs> so they get a few hours together. <laughs> At least they get some time together. It could have been, like, truly Victorian. It's like, mm. oh yeah, she died yesterday, and then I figured it out. Yeah, that would be even worse. Um, a lot of moralizing going on. You know, we can't accept our, our ill-gotten gains, even though we're good people and we've done nothing wrong. The only thing I don't like about the husband is he keeps telling his wife off for being nice to the servants. <laughs> it's like, you can't shake hands with them, you can't apologize to them, they're beneath us. Ah, but that's how an upper-class person would uh, say how, that's the way to act. Yeah. It's mean, though. You never talk to the help. <laughs> and the funny thing is the two servants, it's really just this man and woman, and the woman really respects the man, even though he doesn't really know anything, and he, she's always deferring to him on decisions, but he's not actually good at making decisions, and he's kind of useless. And then every time, he'll just go against whatever she says. So she's like, I guess we should do this. And he's like, no, no, in my superior wisdom, we should definitely do the opposite of whatever you said. Mm. But 30 seconds ago, he was clueless as to what to do. So it, there's some funny scenes there. Uh, and Uncle Max is funny with his Mozart music box. But overall, it's just like a really over-the-top, sad melodrama about... I like these books because they wouldn't exist today. It's just like, yeah, you had a kid and that's fine. But for some reason, she had to like be exiled for 15 years and not see her own <laughs> daughter and meet her the day of her death and have this note hidden in, the, in, the, in a drawer in the Myrtle Room. Now, I neglected one important thing. Her husband is blind. So there's also, it's actually not that important, but there's some scenes of her guiding him around and she's his eyes and she kind of guides him around. So when they go into the Myrtle Room, it's this old, dusty, dark room. You know, he's kind of, there's a bit of fear there. And she's reacting scared, but he doesn't know why. And they're trying to like navigate around the room together. And that's like a really cool tense scene. Um, but mostly, apart from the old uncle who's a bit curmudgeon it's a nice book about nice people. <laughs> that sounds pretty good. So, then that's it. What would you say? Where's that one go? Ah. I was not prepared for this. <laughs> I, now, I now have to play sound effects, which I was not ready for. Um, but... I think that we can do it. There we go. Very nice. Very nice. That might have worked. That might have even worked. You know, if we're lucky, it might have even worked. And you know what? Since I've got it to work, what if we just... I'll show you one. If you go to patreon.com slash booksboys and listen to our animation adventurer show, you can hear things like this. So go listen to that. Out of context, uh, I haven't watched or been in uh, the most recent episodes for that, so I have no idea what that's supposed to be referencing. <laughs> that is the uh, fluffy professor for Bowl Boy. Oh. <laughs> oh, I love that. Okay, actually, that's pretty great. Actually, I'll just show you real quick, because this is great content. Um, We're we, having fun. We also have uh, Jinx. Then okay. we have the science uh, professor guy. I can do science, me. 
Okay. We have um, Silku, who I thought was called Vimto. Vimto. Put a Vimto smile on your face. So lots of uh, shenanigans on that show, and of course, sexy Mel. Is that Vi? It's the Jane council Mel. lady. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So that's what's happening over on Animation Adventurers. We're reviewing Arcane. Those Arc- who have not watched Arcane, <laughs> you will not understand a bit of this. We're reviewing Arcane. Uh, and of course, over on Dark Place Dreamers, um, it's usually myself and Robert, but uh, Alex has joined us and Dragon Charlie has joined us. What's that? Charlie, you're here right Rawr! now? Oh, wow. Thanks. Fantastic. Um, and we're reviewing so yeah. Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, bye-bye, Charlotte. So we're reviewing uh, Twilight Zone episodes. So that's happening over there. Um, top 10 on those so those are fantastic what else have we got on Patreon um, we're doing some plays we, we're finishing our Greek plays yep. we've done our main plays we're going to do a little bonus one of the Cyclops um, hopefully this week and that's us done with our, our ancient Greek plays and then we're going to probably check some out around the world uh, yeah we in the next year kind of have a plan with us and also with Carla um, to just pick up some miscellaneous plays from around the world different Scenes, different countries, and we're going to start with a with a Pirandello. Yep. Um, well, you guys are. Yep. It'll be the Six first episode I'm I'm not in. Exiled for 15 years to wonder. Yep. Yep. <laughs> because then after that, it might be me and Robert doing a play. Um, we might be doing translations because mm-hmm. um, it's an Irish play, and I think he has a closer connection to you know the Irish language than you do. So uh, yeah, that's fair. So we're going to do this, and uh, then we'll pick up... You know, there's one or two Spanish ones I want to do. I wouldn't mind doing another Oscar Wilde. There's lots of different stuff we can do throughout the the next load of months um, over on Playboys. Um, So there's lots of stuff over there. Patreon.com slash Booksboys. And I guess, to save us having to do it later, I might as well just play the ad now and get it over with. The The facts that will be presented are true. He's PJ. He's just yes. Say hello. <laughs> hello. Dark Place Robert and Playboy Alex. Doing all right. Glad to be Thank here again. Yeah, He's going to know me from that. <laughs> <time. laughs> carry on. Anyway. Joined by Saloni. Say hello. Hello, everyone. Dean joined by Carla. Hello. Talk about some plays. That would be fun. Join us for play reviews from Shakespeare to ancient Greece, music, films, poetry, interviews, dark place dreamers, and more. Patreon.com slash booksboys. So that might have been the smoothest uh, ad transition that we've ever done, because it <laughs> might not have been at all planned. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, normally it's more stilted than that. It's like, okay, we got to do this night. <laughs> so what do we have next? So... Again, just following the trend of reading things completely new to me. I, mm, Alexander yes. Dumas Jr. Mm, so I've been, yes. This book, I've got it in Spanish here. Aventuras de cuatro mujeres y un loro. So it's the adventures of four women and a parrot. Okay. <laughs> now, this book does not seem to exist in English. Even on Google, there's four women and a parrot. There's nothing on Google. Really? Uh, it was his first book. Afterwards, he did the Lady of the Camellias, which we've already reviewed. Mm-hmm. He then used material from that for the Traviata. It looks like he then peaked, and then after that, he just released a bunch of more novels and plays nobody cared about for oh, the so next he did 20 write years. About Traviata. Yeah. It, it looks like they reworked the Lady of the Camellias for it. But this book doesn't have a Wikipedia link, even in the French or the Spanish. Like I can't find anything about this book. <laughs> but but um, it does exist. It does exist. I am holding it as well. <laughs> 
It's a very retro-looking cover as well. Yeah, it looks like 70s hair models or something. <laughs> yeah. 80s, maybe? I, I don't know. What decade is that? <laughs> it's giving me, like, late 60s, early 70s vibes, okay, I 70s. feel like. Kind of hippie vibes, yeah. So, yeah. on the back, it says... Basically, it says, just like his dad, you know, idealism, uh, women, medieval castles, homicides, uh, all this kind of adventures that try to make it sound like it's the Three Musketeers. It is not the Three Musketeers. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Uh, it's 400 kind of long pages with very small text. Um, as you can see here, it's long, long pages, small yes. text, tight, no spacing, 400 pages. It's not really a very good book, and I'm... I'm going to go ahead and just send it down the gutter. I didn't really like it that much. So I'm not going to read any more Jumanji Jr. because that's two for two. Yeah, kind of expecting it, unfortunately. I thought it was going to be more of a comedy. I thought we were going to have, like, the one man running around trying to please the four different women and, you know, have some comical hijinks, mistaken identity type stuff where he'll get the wrong names and all this kind of kind of stuff. Um, comedy of errors type stuff. We don't. So one of the earliest scenes in the book, it's our main guy, which I believe he's called Tristan, if I remember correctly. He says, this is the third time I'm going to commit suicide. Okay. So it turns out he's been trying and failing to commit suicide several times, all for this, you know, melodrama over the women and these, like, ridiculous Dumas-like overreactions. So that's typical of his father. Um, he fails again. You know, I think he has a wife. He ends up dating these other girls. The second girl he dates, I think, is the one who is the parrot. Um, then there's the third girl. And the, the fourth girl comes very later on. Basically, they're... It goes kind of weird. So there's these two other guys as well. And the book kind of gets a little bit off track. It ends up with the whole gang just living together for a while. And one of the guys is like, oh, I finally got a, a lover. This one woman's going to be my lover. So our main guy is like, I'll see to that. I've got three women already. I might as well take yours. And that becomes his fourth one. And I thought that was very mean. <laughs> and he's, of course, you know, not particularly being good to the women because he's lying to them and saying, you're the only one I care about. And she's like, what about the one who lives over there? And he's like, ah, oh, I don't care about her at all. But by the way, on a totally unrelated matter, I'm going to be heading over there for a while and I'll be back soon. So I thought there were going to be more hijinks like that. Um, but it just wasn't funny. And then the, there wasn't that much adventuring. Like, as I say, they just end up living together for a while. I thought it was going to be a bit more swashbuckling, a bit more adventuring, or at least a lot of comedy with him getting the girls' names wrong and, you know, running from one house to the next because he's got dates just with them both, to, yeah. you know. But there's not really any of that. They're just content for him to be separated. This is for doubtfire situation. Yeah. yeah. There's one funny bit where he goes to the theatre or one of the other guys goes to the theater and his wife is playing there and he's like, this is my wife playing. And they're all like, well, keep it down. Like they're like, but she's supposed to be dead. And there she is playing in the theater. And I know it's her because she's got my parrot. <laughs> there she is with my parrot. And then there's a little bit of shenanigans there. And that was kind of an amusing scene, I guess. But then it kind of didn't go anywhere. I don't know. I just, I feel like Dumas Jr. just doesn't have... He lacks something that his dad has that really makes the, the plot go and the characters be witty. And it's just kind of dull in the end. And I, I find it a bit of a slog to get through. Didn't have the swashbuckling. Didn't have the humor. 
you might have gone into it expecting something a little bit different, but you were expecting, in a way, yeah, like the Mrs. Doubtfire type stuff. Yeah. So yeah, I have not been able to find anything in English about this book. Nope. I've been looking it up this entire time that you've been talking <laughs> about it. Um, so I looked, up, looked it up in French, and it does exist in French. Okay, so we've got something <laughs> in French. Yes, but there's not really a Wikipedia about it or anything. Um, you can find some about this on Google Books. Um, you want to guess what the rating is? Two out of five. 3.8. Okay. Higher so it's liked five. a bit more, maybe because reading it in the original language has something going for it, mm. but I really, I'm pushing it. There's one bit I didn't like where they get one of the little guy, one of the women has a little kid, and they get the little kid to like be an accomplice in the cheating by going in and looking for some evidence or planting something in the guy's case or something, and I kind of didn't really, and the, the kid gets told off and scolded and shouted at by the dad, and he's like, but, but mom told me to do it, and I didn't really like that. But apart from that, it's passable. I'm going to show you this here. My copy came with a lovely bookmark, which had pictures of skiing and snow sports. Okay. And that was the highlight of the book. <laughs> so, all right, all right. Um, yeah, honestly, I don't want to waste time going into any more details of it, because most of it was forgettable and kind of passable. There's a couple of little sexist comments towards the women, which I didn't love. So did the parrot just uh, ruin his whole thing? No, the, the parrot was irrelevant. You could use oh, this no. title and you could make such a funny movie with lots of fun stuff happening and the parrot's involved. And... Because, yeah, like the parrots to say, like, oh, uh, I love you, Camille. And then yeah, he's like, right? who's Camille? None of that happens. No. Lady Camille. The one guy keeps wanting to die and, you know, they find his body and then he wakes up and his wife's shocked that he's awake, but then he doesn't tell her for a while so he can go off with another girl and then he comes back. But again, that all could have been done in like a really hijinksy kind of way. And it just kind of wasn't. It's really a very boring book. I was just giving through my notes to see if anything jumped out, like any kind of funny bits or whatever, because I think there might have been one or two little minor bits that I liked, but really it's, it's hard to recommend it. There wasn't there wasn't much going on at all. I would not recommend Dumas Jr., um, I think, to anyone. <laughs> so you did read Lady of the Camellias before? Yes. That's, yeah, and you still didn't care. That's didn't, the most famous. Yeah, didn't really care for it either. Mm. It, it was a bit better than this, though. Well, now we need to watch the opera La Traviata. Mm. And... We, we really, really do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so those are, those are my first two books. Um, let's have yours. Yay! All right, so... And the show is over. What? <laughs> <laughs> Well, thanks, everybody. Uh, <laughs> all right, so I read Their Eyes Were Watching God by Zora Neale Hurston. So you never heard of her, right? Never. Okay, but you've heard of Langston Hughes. Yes. Okay, so she was really good friends with Langston Hughes until they wrote a play together called Mulebone, and then never talked again after that until their deaths, okay. which is very unfortunate because they were fantastic together. So they're part of what is known as the Harlem Renaissance, mm -hmm. and I actually took a class on this in uh, university my first time around, and I accidentally signed up for the class, wasn't sure I'd like it, not entirely sure I did, but it was still really informative. So they, like Harlem Renaissance is, it takes place of course around Harlem, New York, mm -hmm. uh, 20s and 30s especially. You can kind of get back into the teens. But we looked at uh, music and theater and some of the writing from this time. And Zora Neale Hurston, along with Langston Hughes, were two of the most famous. You had uh, W.B. Du Bois, um, also very important okay. in the African-American uh, 
movement at the time. Anyway, there's so much to know about her specifically. Um, I feel like it has nothing to do with this book, but that's how it anyway. <laughs> but it's still uh, she has a very interesting history, and this book um, it's still about like the African American movement. Basically, uh, you have your main character uh, Janie here, and she's how to say she's a very good looking person, and her grandmother's trying to make sure that she ends up in a nice place, right? Mm -hmm. So her grandmother was a slave, um, raped by the master, and forced... Well, her baby was about to be killed, um, but so she goes, hides out in the forest, and basically that night is when slavery was ended. Ah, wow. So everyone was let off the farm. It's like, okay, so she's not going to be whipped to death uh, in the morning for, like, having this baby and hiding it and all that. Good. Um, But then her daughter, so, helps her grow up, and then she goes to school, and she's raped by the school teacher. (sighs) And has Janie, our main character. So the grandmother's just like, all right, I want you to get married, and I just want you to be safe because I don't want you to end up like me or your mother. Because the mother actually ends up being a drunk and leaves her and disappears, basically. Okay. So the grandmother's just like, I want you to be safe. I just want you to be able to sit on a porch and just be like protected by a man in the house. So mm-hmm. she has her get married off. And um, basically, she's also like this light-skinned, beautiful uh, black woman. So... Anyone would have been happy with her, but she gets married to this guy who's just, he just wants a worker around the house. He doesn't really want much of a wife or any type of relationship. So she's like, I'm not in love with him. Uh, What's going on? She complains to her grandmother's like, yeah, but you're safe, right? Does he hit you? No. There you go. It's sad when that's the bar, though. That really (laughs) is the bar. But for the grandmother's like, all right, I've been successful. Um, Mm. Because she's not being hurt. You yet. keep talking. I'm going to stop this candle that is smoking us out right now. <laughs> yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, now, basically, Granny dies. Okay, and she's doing the housekeeping around the house. Uh, basically, her husband wants her to do more work because she feels, or he feels that she's been pampered her whole life, and she's bit reluctant to do that um but i kind of agree with her in a way so this guy just comes down the street named joe and he just sweet talks her uh, and they run off together he's like okay maybe i can fall in love with this guy he seems decent and he's been really nice to me so far so already better than my current husband uh-huh <laughs> <laughs> as dean walks off again and basically says, all right, I want to go to this town that's entirely for black people. It sounds like they're building it. And there's not much there when they arrive, but Joe is this guy's name, or Jody. Um, and he's like, all right, well, what you guys need is you need a general store. You need mm-hmm. like a better just town in general. Make me your mayor, and we'll do that. And it works. Good. So, in that case, it's alright. Um, some of the people don't really love that he's taken over, 
But like it says in the book, like uh, they still bow down to him, and that's what causes more problems in a way. Okay, it's like, well, we're not going to speak up to him because he's doing a good enough job, but we disagree with things here or there. Okay, like, okay, but um, no one does a perfect job, right? No, no, no. Um, but we kind of we jump ahead. I think like ten years or so. Um, well, we jump do a couple jumps. First, okay. it's like a seven year thing. And then another 10 years after that, and then 20 years after they met. Oh, right. Okay. Wow. So we have, yeah, so seven-year jump, like 10-year jump, three-year jump, mm-hmm. stuff like that. And throughout, it seems that Joe is becoming a little bit more abusive. Uh, she messed up food one night, and he just slaps her for messing up the food. But, okay, sure. And she... Works at the general store, and she messes up some things. He, she doesn't do exactly the way Joe wants. Uh, he's like, all right, I need you to put this note uh, up on the nail by the door. This is how we know what we got in for the store this week. And he's looking for it at one point. He's like, why isn't it here? This is exactly where I told you to put it. I'm like, uh, I hate that I kind of agree with him at times because mm. she is a bit useless around the store. <laughs> but... Then we find out that he has some kidney failure and is dying, and then he dies. There's a bit that happens in between, but after that, she heads the store, and there's no problem around it then. It sounds like she just kind of needed to be free, in a way. Okay. Then her... Then she's uh, single for about nine months, this... uh... Guy comes around, starts sweet-talking her. Um, people are worried that he might be trying to steal her money because uh-huh. she owns the general store. She was the mayor's wife. She actually had, I think, like $1,400 saved up, which is quite a bit for, like, 1900 Yeah, yeah. Something like that, especially for a black woman in 1900 Um But he actually seems to be a really good guy, honestly. Um, his name's T-Cake. Okay. Well, that's his nickname, at least. Sure. Why not? And so I, they basically starts off with teaching her checkers, and Joe would have basically never allowed this. Right, right. Yeah, it's like a woman should be in the house cooking. Um, why are you Perfect. learning to play checkers? You, you don't need to know how to do that. And she eventually learns even how to hunt. Wow. And how do you have any recreational activities when you can Yes. Tomorrow? Well, they have a whole, like, half a page saying they play and do this. They go to the cinema or something. And it's like, wow, they actually have what seems like a really nice relationship. Uh, and so I'm like, ah, it's probably just their fears. Um, and she basically says, like, all right, I've lived grandma's way. Now I'm going to live mine because I'm going to do it my way because I think I've fallen in love with this guy. And you know what? I, I enjoy that. So she plans to marry him and sell the store. And you get that in the back of your head, like, is this guy actually for real? They've known him for maybe a couple months at this point. So I don't know. And then in my book, there's a note that says, like, what could possibly go wrong at the end of a chapter? And like, dang it. (laughs) I was really hoping she'd have a bit of a nice ending. Um, So they go to the next town, they get married. And the next morning, he's not there and her money's gone. Uh, $200. She still has the 1200 in the bank. And she's like, all right, what's going on? Did this guy just marry me, leave me, and steal my money? Oh, 
but then he comes back that night with a guitar and I'm like, and he's like, okay, I will never leave you. You actually are really meaningful to me. You're beautiful. And I do love you. But I did also spend about $200 in a night. Wow. Okay. It, it was, he tells this story of him getting like uh, food together for these people, getting lots of people coming in because he's like, what does it feel like to be rich? Just going to try. And so he feeds all these people, but then he's also like, all right, I'm going to pay ugly women not to come in. There was one woman who was so ugly, he paid her double. (laughs) I'm like, oh God, this is, this is a thing. And of course she's angry with him. Like, yeah, you're lying to me. You took my money. If you do it again, I'm like, okay, wait, you, if you do it again, I guess she loves him. Yeah, I guess. Things honestly go well after that, for the most part. Uh, They go and just live on a farm, picking beans, making $8 a day. She even starts doing some work, which is surprising because everyone's like, okay, this woman is probably... She's thinking that she's better than all of us. Um, And then a hurricane comes, and that's where uh, their eyes were watching God came about Mm -hmm. because... That was uh, the line used when they're all basically in the hurricane. Everyone's worried about dying. And so they look up and their eyes are watching God at this point. Um, Oh, yeah. I also forgot to mention that uh, he is a massive gambler. Um, But he's apparently a good gambler uh, because he like that $200. He had $12 left, got it back to $300. um, But he comes back from that stabbed. Uh, ah, yes. So maybe he won, maybe he didn't. We're not really sure. But that's when they go off uh, to this like type of plantation. And I'm not going to spoil what happens after that. I usually do tell the ending. But uh, Hurricane happens. There's about 30 pages left. And things... I don't know. It's bittersweet. I told you the ending. What do you think? Uh... I don't know. I like the idea of the book. I really like the the story so far, but um, it sounds like you're giving it a yeah, 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 right? Like it's a good book. We're happy with it overall. Yes. Now I I'm saying like I told you the ending before the podcast started. Uh, I don't know if you remember. I do not remember. You do not remember. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, was there was the there. court scene. I don't know if that will ring a bell. Uh, no. Okay. Anyway. Uh, Irrelevant. So the thing I really love about this is that there are so many beautiful lines in this. It's very poetic. Um, One of my favorites in here, there are years that ask questions and years that answer. And I'm like, okay, that's actually a really beautiful uh, thing to put in here. Uh, For the grandma, they make her out to be like a cracked plate, branches without roots. I'm like, okay, there's some really good imagery in this that I, I think... That's nice. Is really really well done. Good poetic imagery. Yeah. Um, Because there's even like a plate in the scene that she says it, and like comparing her granddaughter to the plate. Um, So there's some really nice quotes. I could read quite a few, but I'm gonna save us the time. Yeah, it's definitely a yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say for yeah, go ahead and play it. Yeah, you called for it, so here it is. Now, I will say, like, I would recommend this to a lot of people. 
I'm not generally someone who likes the like southern vernacular from this time. I didn't really care much for um, Huck Finn. It just mm. wasn't for I me. I struggle with that type of stuff a little bit. And there's a lot of that in here. But I think going in, knowing that it's all there, preparing yourself for it, uh, yeah, it's a good read otherwise. Okay. Good. Yeah. I'm more... It's also fast. I read it in just a f- few hours. Yeah, you, you arrived for the show still <laughs> reading it. <laughs> yes, I did read over half of it within two hours today. I'm I'm worried that I don't remember the ending after we obviously discussed it in the last few hours. We were talking about it uh, going, like, looping back to the beginning in a way. Oh, yes, I do remember that now. Good. No, that was just me worried about my own mental health there. So I'm glad <laughs> that I do remember. No, but there's, there's a bit in there that, like... A lot happens in that last 30 pages, mm. and I don't want to go into it and spoil it too much, yeah. but it, it's not a great ending for her, but you can tell from the first page of the book as well. Okay, okay, fair. But it's not the worst. We're happy with it overall, so that's oh, yes. good. Alfred's fallen asleep. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know what we're paying him for. But look, I tell you what, he's fallen asleep, I'm forgetting things. You know, what would be really good is if we were more productive, which is why I think we should have taken our shots of Magic Mind this morning. How's that for a link-in? So, yeah, I didn't take my Magic Mind this morning, I've ran out. Uh, We talked about this last month, but um, I took... Basically, you notice the effect after two to three days, but I noticed that after sort of five to seven days, once I really hit the week that the shots of Magic Mind really improved my productivity. They give you a little buzz that kind of carried me going throughout the day, made me feel like I could get more stuff done, kind of check off my to-do list, uh, as it were. And it is kind of recommended that you take it in the morning, take it alone, take it with your usual coffee or tea or whatever you start your day with. Alfred's having a glass of water there at the moment. Is he or is he uh, sick? I hope he's not sick, (laughs) Alfred. But yeah, so we do recommend magicmind.com and you can you can get yourself some. But it really, really helped me last month as well, especially we talked a lot about it in a little bit more detail. But um, it gives you that, that kick, that little boost to get yourself through the day. And, uh, you know, I didn't feel myself fading when I took it. I felt that even into the evening, I was still kind of buzzing with like the energy to get stuff done. So there we go. I think that we'll move back to something that I've read. And I've read, um, again, something wildly, vastly different, um, volumes 7 to 10 of the complete works of Dumas short story volumes. So I think that at this point, they're getting a little bit weaker. Well, you could look at it two ways. They're either getting weaker or stronger. They're getting more content from the novels. (laughs) Yeah, I, I knew it was coming... It's, but it's also just why not read Three Musketeers or something? Yeah, if you've not read the novels, then they're getting better because this is his best material. But if you have, then fifty percent of the you don't need this. So that's the thing. And some of these volumes are also a little bit shorter, so it's becoming less that's actually needed. But they were still good. Uh, volume eight was the weakest of all, I think, but the others were still pretty good. Um, just try and pull up some of my notes. Uh, one of the funniest ones, and before we get into it, there's something I forgot to mention earlier, a note from uh, from Dead Secret. Um, because just when you... It just popped into my head there. Um, we were talking about, obviously, the Wilkie Collins book, 
And there's a funny little asterisk when they talk about a mustache where it says um, Wilkie Collins tried to grow a mustache, which Charles Dickens said was unsuccessful. And I just really like that they've chosen to put that in the notes. (laughs) So what happened in these volumes? Um, Honestly, there's a lot of these stories that are about Napoleon to the point where I wish he'd just written a novel about Napoleon. He really should have. Because <laughs> he comes up in a lot. I mean, I feel like he had one at some point. There must be one somewhere. With so many in here about Napoleon. Yeah. But then if it turns out these are all excerpts from a novel about Napoleon, that would make the stories even less useful. You know, whereas at the minute we've got lots of stories about Napoleon. And I don't think he wrote a novel, but I don't know. You've read most of them. Yeah. Um, we so start with Napoleon Crossing... You know, it might be that, yeah, look, it's uh, Dumas' novels are difficult to find and they're released in different volumes and under different names and all this kind of stuff. So who knows what's out there, really? Um, some of the early stuff that in this volume is about Napoleon and uh, crossing the Alps. That's some of the first stories we get. Um, some of them, so there's a multi-part story about Diana de Meridor. And um, this is basically, she's the mistress of Debussy. And another guy, Remy, eventually ends up... I think he essentially kidnaps her, to be fair. Um, So it's this bit where she doesn't want to be with him and she's kind of almost willing to die for it. She's like, no, I'm the mistress of Debussy and and no one else. Um, And part two of the story is called Assassination. So there you go. Someone gets killed. Probably Debussy. Part three has a nice title. A flower... Sorry, a fruit, a torch, and a bouquet. (laughs) So... Literally, they just list the three things that happen in, like, the two-page short story there. But they, they they give over these things as part of the story with Diana. Um, like, these are okay. They're nothing fantastic, some of them. The Gourmand is literally just a little piece about Porthos from the Musketeers and his massive amount of eating that he did. And that is lifted directly from, I think, the third... Um, I think the third Three Musketeer story. There's a funny one that comes up later, which I'll get to, but I, I just want to remind myself, which is just Dumas himself. Uh, it's in a different volume. Dumas himself writes a little note explaining why he was able to pay for something, and I thought it was very, very hilarious that they included that. Just checking what else we have in volume 7. There's one called Surprise, which is about the Count of Monte Cristo. Now... There's a lot of stories in these volumes about the Count of Monte Cristo, some of which I don't remember. And I don't know if they're new and they're not in the novel, or if I just don't remember them. So there's there's one nice story where this lady says, um, oh, it's that damned Count of Monte Cristo. So this guy is trying to flirt with this girl, and she's like, I can't marry you, I can't marry anyone, because of a promise I made to that damned scoundrel, the Count of Monte Cristo. Um, but I really was in love with this guy, Albert de Morcef. And then she sa- he says, hold on, you've just mentioned the Count of Monte Cristo. That gives you away. I think I know who you are. You're Eugenie Danglers. And she's like, yes, how do you know that? And he's like, well, I am Albert de Marcef. I'm the guy <laughs> that you love and weren't allowed to marry. And the Count of Monte Cristo just married my sister. So now we're all friends and we can get together. And it has a happy ending. And I'm like, why don't you recognize him? <laughs> This is the the one man you're supposed to love. (laughs) You didn't recognize him. You've been chatting to him for 20 minutes. 
But I don't remember he the kind. He was wearing a mask ah. or women's clothing. I don't know. <laughs> Could have done the Shakespeare thing. Do you remember Monte Cristo being married? Dante's. Because there's another story later about him and his wife. I don't remember that. I don't remember much of the ending. It was the journey for me that I remember the most. But I... Th- in the end, does... I don't remember him getting married at all. So that was... I don't know, Robert that was weird was, for me. Uh, the son, right? There was son... Yeah... That was uh, whatever the betrayer's song. Yeah. I forget his name. These make it seem like... I need to reread There was a happy ending where he got married, and I don't remember that. Um, I don't know. There's he, one... he got his revenge at the end. Yeah, I feel like I might need to reread it myself. Although that's uh, quite quite an undertaking, I yes. think. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, there's one story, I think I can swear because it's in the title and it's used in the literal sense, The Bastard of Waldeck. And um, this is a sort of a scoundrel. There's a funny part where someone's going to fight him in a duel. And they say, hold on, you're the bastard of Waldeck. You don't even deserve to die by my noble hand in a duel. I will not kill you. So he he escapes there. Um, But then he tries to kill a woman and then they hate him even more. And that kind of made me sad because they were doing the class thing where he's like illegitimate. And I was kind of hoping that he would turn out to be a good guy, you know, and win. But then it's like, no, no, he's going around trying to kill women and making a worse name for himself. So... That was a little bit sad. We have a lot of stories with Mary Stuart, Mary Queen of Scots uh, as well, Catherine de' Medici, all this uh, stuff. The Queen's Perfumer, it's lifted from one of the novels, but it's about Catherine de' Medici trying to poison someone with her perfumes. Uh, She was kind of famous, infamous, I guess, for that. But there's a nice story with her here, Mary Stuart, where it says, Catherine, following a habit contracted 18 years since, was about to pass first when she suddenly stopped giving way to Mary Stuart and said, pass, madame, for you are the queen. Because I guess she'd married her her son, uh, Charles, I guess it was, and become the queen. Unusual to see that type of um, deference from Catherine de' Medici. There's also a lot of stuff about the King of Navarre, Henry, the, who became Henry IV of France, and um, Catherine didn't want him to become king, and there's a lot of stories about that, and trying to poison people and so forth. But that's volume seven. Volume eight, I'm going to really skim through quickly because it was the weakest of all the volumes. It starts with the Regent's Letter. This is from um, Louise de la Valliere, I believe. Or it's from one of the one of the other um, stories from um, Dumas. So it's just lifted from it. But it's a, basically the Regent has... So it's a Regent's Letter followed by the Regent's Revenge. And sorry, it's not Valier, it's Valois. It's from the Darmental uh, series. So there's a funny bit where there's Raoul Darmental. He's a, a knight, the Chevalier Darmental. Mm-hmm. And um, this girl, you know, it's, it's his uh, brother or it's his sister, I believe. But she's living with this guy and Jean Bouva, he's a copywriter and he's not being paid in a long time by the, by the court. And essentially they do a swindle where she's with this guy, this powerful guy, and it turns out he owes her thanks, and he asks who she is, and she's from Jean Bouvard, who he was just about to kind of do a swindle on. So he's like, oh, really? You're from him? Cool. I should be thankful. Then the next part is his revenge, where he goes ahead and does the swindle anyway. <laughs> so it's like, okay. Be thankful to you. <laughs> yeah, so never mind that. Um, and that's kind of funny. Then there's one Byron sees Keen. 
This is literally, Keen apparently was a famous Shakespeare actor. And he just goes to watch him act. And then there's lots, and they're all very short stories, very, very short ones, throughout the rest of these three volumes, about Keen. He just keeps popping up in little, like he's acting, there he is. There's a funny one here where he's, um, so in Byron meets Keen, he meets a police officer, actually, and the guy's just beating people up. And they're like, I didn't know that they gave the police this much license. Hmm. And the guy's like, well, they don't, but like, you know, screw it, I'm going to beat everyone up anyway. And the guy's like, am I okay? Next time I meet a constable, I'll always be sure to be very courteous and uh, <laughs> polite, because apparently you fellows can uh, go around beating people up. I'm worried about Alfred. <laughs> <laughs> Is that the next short story? Yeah, yeah, Dumas' famous story. <laughs> I'm worried about Alfred. <laughs> it's just me placing him in weird, uh, yeah. weird positions. Usually, uh, so this one, um, he is face down over a glass. Uh... <laughs> the, the... <laughs> there are a few things you can yeah. say about that. The next story is about someone trying to save the life of the King of France, but they will have to like drill into his head to do it. Oh. And there's a question of Catherine de Medici saying that would be an assassination attempt. And then it's kind of like, right, it's a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing. It's like, well, what do we do? Either he dies or we try to save him and risk killing him. And then a, we get our heads cut off. A lot of things yeah. have got to align here for us to, to be allowed to live at the end of this. Um, there's also a very long one, again, about Edmund Dantes. I mean, I've just taken a photo here. Part four, Cemetery of the Chateau. So, like, it's a long four-part story, all lifted from um, the Dumas stories. So there's a lot of volume eight about that. But there's a funny one where he helps this one guy to um, find a bride. And then it turns out the bride cheats on him. The guy goes out in a boat with the bride and his best friend, and his wife is actually cheating with his best friend. And it's almost comical, because while he's, like, fixing the sails, they're, like, kissing in the background and stuff, you know. When he turns around, they kind of stop, you know. Um, they get very blatant about it, and he knows what's going on. So he just crashes the boat and lets them all die. But he manages to swim to shore. Mm. And then Dante's is like, good. No, it's a weird Jesus parable here. He's like, because he said to him before, I want to know that when I call upon you, you will be ready to follow me. But I'm worried that you won't, because I just find you a lovely wife. So now after all this happens, he's like, good. You've passed the test. Your wife is not there anymore. Now when I call you, you will follow me. And there's a line where he literally says, you know, even Peter denied Jesus three times, but now you're going to come with me. It's like, this is a bit weird (laughs) that you're giving that, but okay, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, so should he not believe or not follow? I don't know. And Mercedes apparently is the name of Dante's wife. I have no recollection of that. Okay, yeah, I do sort of remember. Mm. I I always remembered having... Finding it hard to pronounce the name, though. It's the same as the car. No, it's Mercedes for the car. Yeah, but that's only because we're saying it wrong, surely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Isn't it like Mercedes? Yeah, I guess. It, I mean, in Spanish it's Mercedes, but I don't know. I guess, is it, I guess it's French. I don't know what yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Uh, moving into Volume 9, more stuff about the King of Navarre. There's a funny line in a phrase called Two Fugitives where they say, are these people all... It's a Napoleon story. And they say, are all these Bonapartists, um, you know, are they all thieves? And he says, well, they're not all thieves, but a good part of them are. And that's a pun, because Bonaparte means good part. Oh. So that's quite good. They said, I, they're not all thieves, but a good part of them are. And I really like that. Alfred's warming himself by the, <laughs> by the radiator there. 
To be careful, don't get too close to it, Alfred. You know, we don't want you to to suffer a mischief. There's one play which I was, one story I was scared to read. So many photos of this on books, boys. Uh... <laughs> There's one story I was scared to read because it was called the Big Spider. <laughs> All right. But I did read it in the end anyway. Is that some thief or something called Spider? It turns out it's an inn. Hmm. And um, this guy's... This is his first, so, no, braggart, I do not need your money. The host of the big spider is richer than you. Richer than I? Who the dickens can say so? I'm, okay, I'm nice old on it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> if they're talking like this. And they roll gold but on the table and things. And the landlord is... That must be anachronistic. Who the dickens? That came from... Dickens, I think right? that that was already a phrase. I think it was a weird coincidence. I don't know. Huh. Um, That'd is be funny. Englishman, you are a fool. You wish to be duped under all circumstances. And then he says, do you know what the host has just whispered to me? He cautions me to be on my guard. He seemingly believes that you intend to murder me in order to get my money. So this person's a real fool. Because <laughs> the landlord says to him, you're literally here begging to be duped out of your money. This man is going to kill you. And the man turns to the other guy, to the sailor, and says, The landlord just told me you're going to kill me, but that can't possibly be right. <laughs> so he's uh, literally asking for it. So apparently it was even used in Shakespeare's times. It is not related to Charles Dickens whatsoever. Mm. Um, it can mean devil or old Nick. Yeah. It was even used in Merry Wives of Windsor. There you go. Wow. Something so uh, it's, facts. I skipped ahead. It's actually here in Volume 9 that we get that fun story about Monte Cristo. So... Volume 8 had even less in it. Um, but there we go. And the guy says, Master, my life belongs to you. And he gives him the thing about, didn't didn't even Peter deny the Lord three times. Um, Manuelita was the little wife, by the way. So that's nice. And Jacopo was the guy. Uh, we have two separate stories about Mary Stewart having lovers, Italian lovers. Um, it's kind of sad, though, because it seems that one guy goes to his death saying, you know, you cruel mistress, because she couldn't admit to having a lover. So when the guy's accused of being chasing after her, she just lets him get executed, which is kind of sad. And he's called Rizzio or something like really obviously Italian sounding. (laughs) (laughs) In the story, The Italian Lover. Um, But we do also have a story somewhere in volume 9 or 10 about the death of Mary Stewart herself again. I did think that we already had that in one of the other volumes, but Mary... Because wasn't that the one where she said she pardoned the guy before he beheaded her that we covered last time they have a different version of it here where she's um, uh, executed again maybe they just put it in twice Mm. but it's a different telling it's a different version because we don't don't have the bit where she says you know I pardon you this time might have been a different Mary then volume 9 ends very nicely though it's a story um, about it's a pill it's described as a pilgrimage um, between these two people and Conscience is the name of, of one of them. I don't recall the name of the other. Mariette or something like that. Basically, Conscience is blind. And Mariette, um, they're in love. And, you know, he's in love with her, but she's worried that he hasn't actually seen how beautiful she is. And they go on this pilgrimage to the church, and it just ends with the belief that the, the awe of the virgin from the church has given him a little bit of sight. He says it's still blurry, it's still dark, but just enough sight to kind of see her shape and to know that she's attractive and then she's happy um, with that. I make it sound vain. It's very touching <laughs> when you read. And I really liked that story because it was very touching and also it was not related to any of the novels. It was just a complete short story, you know? Ooh, that's nice. I mean, yeah, refreshing at that point. It was refreshing, yeah. Um, 
So back to volume 10, and we're back with Edmond Dantes and Raoul. No, we're not. We're with a different Raoul, because it's the death of Athos, and Raoul was also Athos's son. I don't remember Athos dying in the novels. Maybe in the third one somewhere he dies, and I've forgotten it. But we cover the death of Athos. Wait, Edmond Dantes with Athos? No, no, I, it's a different Raoul. That's a jest. Oh, um, okay, two, okay. He's, his son is also called Raoul. I was wondering, like... <laughs> that would have been a was... nice crossover. A crossover? Yeah. Yeah, that would be nice. Now, this is where we get the story about Dumas, where he literally... It's called, like, the source of money or something, and he has to, like... It's a two-paragraph story where he just explains why he had enough money from his books to buy something. And I don't know why he's felt the need to include that in the collection. We have another story about Raoul, where D'Artagnan is worried about him. Obviously, he told Athos he would look after his um, child... Then we get the other story about Mary Stuart being killed again, and it's called The Sacrifice of Beauty. Um, there's a fun series of stories called The Corsican Mother, The Corsican Son, and The Corsican Brother. Um, basically, the mother is just introducing the story and the characters. The son is the longest one, and it's just about the son kind of getting up to mischief, and he ends up fighting a duel and being killed. And then the brother is like the family's grief for the death of the guy. But it's kind of a nice story because, again, it's kind of unique and... Doesn't fit in anywhere else. There you go. Source of money. The proof. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, those are the main, the main ones. There's another one about a brigand. It's a two-part story. Not not that much happens in it, but it's basically there is a brigand, and then part two is called Mercy and the Brigand, where they they then show him some mercy and don't kill him, even though he killed the guy's son. The guy's like, "No, nah, I'm not going to have him be brutally murdered by you people." Yes, he killed my son, but it was in a kind of revolution situation. It wasn't. Mm. something personal and he actually steps in to protect him which i i really really appreciated so were there any of the short stories that had to go down the gutter there might have been one or two that specifically went down the gutter but i definitely feel that overall the content was still pretty strong maybe with the exception of uh, volume eight one bit i forgot about which we've been talking a lot about are these you know three musketeer stories did they come before or after the novels and i think i've seen one piece of evidence to suggest that they came first there's one story about D'Artagnan receiving the, the marshal's baton. So if you follow all, th- all of the books through, he kind of keeps getting promoted and he ends up becoming captain of the musketeers and everything. The highest mm-hmm. honor is to be marshal of France and you get the special baton. And when I read it in the novels, it always seemed tacked on. It always seemed like it didn't really fit. It's almost like Dumas kind of got lost in the story and couldn't find a good way of coming back to finish D'Artagnan's story. So you're going through all this stuff with um, the the uh, Comte de Braglione and all this kind of stuff. We end up with the Man of the Iron Mask. And then it just kind of wraps up quickly. They're out there. Porthos is carrying a big boulder and he dies. And then they're like, D'Artagnan was on the battlefield. And someone came up and said, you've just been made Marshal of France. And he hands him the baton. And he celebrates and then gets shot dead. Oh, and wow. that's the short story. And it always just felt kind of shoehorned into the novel you know mm. so now that i've read it as a short story i'm like i feel like this was written as a short story you know so that's my one clue interesting yeah interesting. it'd be nice if there were a bit more information about it i'm not entirely sure that there is um you would need to find an expert yeah but look that's what we that's what we got Welcome back to part two with the Dean and Alex, the Books Boys. 
And I have a book recommendation. It's a little bit outside my comfort zone. Normally, I like my high fantasy stuff, but this is set in rural America uh, around about the time they started um, their war on terror. Um, it's called Ways to Hide in Winter. It's written by Sarah St. Vincent. It's her debut novel. Um, it's about a woman who's working in a greasy spoon up in the mountains uh, during winter, of course. Um, and she has a very unusual guest show up. Uh, it's quite interesting. It deals with their developing relationship. It's not romantic in any way. Um, but the novel also deals with the main character's past. Um, she's recovering from a car crash and all the events that led up to that moment. Uh, everything in her past it just seems like a tragedy and you see her make these decisions about that she thinks is best for her marriage and I'm just sitting there reading going, no, don't do that. It's good. I really enjoyed it. I've read two more books which I can cover in one go because they are a book and an immediate sequel. So the first one is called Hide and Be. And the second one, let me just get the exact title. I think it's called My Brother, Myself. Yeah. Hide and Be and My Brother, Myself. So you did have enough time to read both of them? In the end, I did. Wow. They're advertised as Dr. Socorro Mysteries. Um, So here's what we... Here's what we have. Basically, we've got two twins, Martin and Arthur, and they go by Marty and Artie. And they play this game Hide and Be, where they were kind of abused as kids and everything. Like, it was a bad story. They have a sad story, and they go from, you know, foster home to foster home and all this kind of stuff. Um, They pretend to be each other. So, like, you'll do something wrong, you'll hide, and I'll be the person, and I'll get the punishment. And the same when you do something good. Uh, and they do this constantly, and they continue doing it into their adult lives. And they're even, like, doing shifts at work and this kind of stuff and confusing their boss. Uh, it gets a little bit rapey when they start to do, can trick their girlfriends. Yeah, that's definitely That I don't okay. like. That is not okay. And the book makes that clear as well, to be fair, that, you know, that is actually rape. So, but that happens. Um, but what happens in the, in the novels is um, one is arrested for killing the other. Oh. And it's... All is a case of mistaken identity because the guy says, "Okay, you've just arrested me for killing him, but actually I am him, and you can't you can't arrest me for murdering someone who I am." <laughs> so then they have to do the identity to prove because you can't that that would that would be a mistrial, you know, if you get the identity wrong. Mm. Now the first clue is okay. So do we just swap it then? Did Martin kill Arthur yeah. or did Arthur kill Martin? But then they say, well, actually, the murder didn't take place. We were on a boat, and he had an accident, and he died. And then, for some reason, I buried his body and hid it so that I could take his identity to trick his girlfriend and his job and everything. But there wasn't a murder. And also, the one you think is dead is actually me. So it kind of gets more complicated, and they bring Dr. Sirocco in, Socorro in to kind of evaluate him to see, is he first of all, is he fit to stand trial? Because he might be schizophrenic at this point. Because he still thinks they're both alive, but he's both of them somehow, you know? Mm. And, you know, or is he just lying? You know, when it's convenient, is he just the right one that didn't do the thing, you know? So it kind of gets very interesting. And then the second book, the story picks up where more twins are starting to be murdered now. And they suspect that this guy is doing it. um, And he's killing twins who don't celebrate their birthdays together. Because that was always something really important to him. Mm. Um, so it, they start to think, well, is he now doing these murders? And then again, of course, they meet him and he's like, oh, no, but I'm not that one. I'm the other one. And she's like, but last time you told me you were Arthur and this time you're telling me you're Martin. And then they have to evaluate again and be like, 
is the guy even sane at this point, you know? Or is he just lying to us and pretending for convenience? So that's that's the real crux of the story. Um, it's interesting. There are ways to tell if it's differential identity disorder, but... Looks like they're, right. they're identical twins where they have the same DNA. They would have been able to tell if they'd both been fingerprinted before one died, but they weren't. Dissociated identity mm. disorder. So it kind of, yeah, they, they have to figure out the identity, wow. but it seems that he truly believes he is both of them. But of course, then they have to evaluate to find out if that's true or not, you know? Um, and that's, that's the, the story of the two books. So the first one is that he killed his brother, but he didn't really. And the second one is that now he's, you know, killing other people. And they bring the same person in to work with the FBI then to do the evaluation. Um, ah, hold on a second. Uh, getting a call. I'll be back with you in a few minutes, Alex, about half an hour. Hello, you're through to Books Boys. You've got Dean on the line. Who's calling? My name is Gary Stewart. Gary, I would, it's a great coincidence that you would call in because... We were just chatting um, about your book. In fact, your two books, uh, the Twin Murders um, books, that I, I was just chatting to my co-host about them. So thank you very much for sending those. I absolutely love them. Um, how are you today? Um, just great. It's it's nice to be in New Mexico. I'm guessing you're getting a little bit better weather uh, than we're getting here in the UK. Yeah, it is uh, 43 degrees out there right now. No wind. 43, yeah. I don't know that in Celsius, but I think it's a good bit better than what we've got. <laughs> um, it's pretty it's pretty cold here today. But look, um, I'll, I want to talk to you about your books. So a lot of the time we interview uh, first-time authors, first or second book, you know. Um, but you're quite a prolific writer. You've had a lot of, uh, a lot of books before. How long have you been writing for? Since I was about five. Wow. Okay, that's a that's a good a good long time. <laughs> what did you write when you were five? I wrote uh, two cartoon two cartoons and a poem and a note to my little sister. I'm just making that up, you know. I don't. I'm 84 today, so I don't remember much about being five. <laughs> but did you? You know, the question is still true, though. You know, when you were little, did you? You did like to write, yeah? I don't think so. No? Yeah. When I joined the Air Force in the mid-50s, my full-time job for four years in the Air Force was writing. That's what I did all along, every day. So that's how I started. So that's how you started. And then you've been writing now, presumably for a while. So how many books have you actually had published? I've had 18 published, and these, the new books, uh, Hyden B and my brother, myself, that will make it 20. I've got another new book that I'll release next summer, in the summer of 2024. Wow, okay. So you're writing uh, very prolifically. 18, that's a lot, and not including the two that I've just read. And I like to ask people, you know, what's the plan? Are you working on a new book? And you're you're so far ahead of me. You've got the next one uh, ready to go next summer already. <laughs> yes, I have to be ahead. And what's what's happening in the next book? Is it related to these, or is it just something something new? Uh, it is related to the, to these two books. It's, right now, the book is a duology. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two books. They're they're closely related. Uh, 
And the third book, the one that will come out next summer, uh, is book three in this series. Okay. So I was, obviously I read the two thinking this was going to be a complete story, but no, it is going to be a trilogy. Is three going to be the end or are we going to keep going? It depends on how well books one, two, and three do. If they do okay, well, yeah. they'll, they'll be a book four. <laughs> the realistic answer, I suppose, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about what happens. We have um, two twins, Marty and Artie, Martin and, and Arthur, and they have this game, Hide and Be, where they'll replace each other in certain scenarios. You know, you hide and I'll be the person right now. So one of them gets in trouble, you'll take the blame for it, I'll hide, this this kind of thing. And it seems that um, later as they go into adult life, they continue to do that to an extent. And then after the death of, of one twin, the other is actually... So Arthur is actually still using, almost as a coping mechanism, this hide-and-be game. And I suppose some of the questions we need to figure out throughout the two books, you know, are... Does he understand who he is? Does he know that he's Arthur? Is he projecting kind of Martin's personality onto him? Is it a delusion or is it something that he's doing deliberately to avoid punishment? And of course, the two books explore those themes then. Um, is that a fair Is that a fair summary? That's one of the best summaries I've heard of this. Heard okay. Of, well. <laughs> this book. So I'm very happy uh, that you've gotten that far. Good, good. So let me ask you, when people talk to you about the two, which of the two books is their favorite? Well, clearly, book number one is my favorite mm. because that took me 12 years to develop book one. Right, wow. I went through half a dozen full rewrites mm -hmm. to finish book one. I finished book two in less than six months. Okay, wow. So that's a that's a massive difference in uh, in time scale there. It is. So book one was more of a, I don't want to say a labor of love, but it was that one that you put so much of yourself into, so much of your time. Book two was the was to a sequel. <laughs> yes, prequel and sequel. Yeah. And, you know, it's fantastic because I think they, they certainly both read excellently. Um, we've got Dr. Lisbeth Socorro as our, well, basically she's working in book one in the um, prison as a medical attendant in the prison. And she's trying to evaluate Arthur. Um, by book two, she's actually then attached to, to assist the FBI on an investigation Um and she quite quickly realizes that it's the same it's the same guy. Um now what made you want to write this story? You know, where did the idea come from for this twin murders idea story? That that requires a little bit of explanation. All right. I'm I'm what they call a panster. I write books by the seat of my pants. I do not outline them. Mm-hmm. I don't have a form that I follow. I don't have the foggiest idea of what is about to happen <laughs> in my book. I didn't know, for example, that 
when they're in their mid-twenties, Arthur and Martin separate by death. Mm-hmm. One of them dies. I didn't know that. Right. I knew it. I knew it when the scene came up on my computer. I saw it and was surprised. How am I going to write a book about twins when one of the twins is dead? <laughs> What's going to happen next? Yeah. So I, I've written all of my uh, fiction titles under this theory that you cannot get ahead of your reader. And the way you get ahead of your reader, too far ahead of your reader, is if you've got a complicated outline yeah. and the reader figures you out. And he or she starts to think about what's going to happen next, just like you thought about, in this case it's me, what I thought about when I came to this death. What am I going to do now? What's the survivor going to do? What motivates him to do what he actually turned out doing? So as you know from reading the first book, this death occurs uh, as an accident on a river. I know the river. I've been on that river in a boat in a storm. So I can describe that from my own memory. I cannot yeah. describe what how the accident occurs all of that is done by the seat of my pants. Mm-hmm. But once I've got that far and one of these two boys dies, what does the other one do when he finally gets the body in the boat and he goes upriver, gets back to their little camp? What does he do at that point? I haven't the foggiest idea because I don't outline I try to write the book as it happens. Mm-hmm. In this particular book, for whatever reason, I thought that Arthur gets the body of his twin, Martin. He pulls the body into the camp inside the building, and he starts digging up the floorboards, and he buries his brother's body underneath the floorboard. Now what? Now what? Yeah. <laughs> Again, I not I don't have the foggiest idea where this book is going. So to you're go. just as surprised as we are with the I developments. Am. I am. <laughs> and as long as I'm surprised, you can't guess what's going to happen next. If you could, yeah. it would take, it would take the tension out of the book. That's what Stephen Hawking sells. Mm-hmm. He says never write a book where the reader can get ahead of you. And the only way the reader gets ahead of you is he figures you out. You've got an outline and you're following it. Yeah. If you don't, yeah. if you don't do that. So once the body is under the floorboards, I have to figure out. And on my as I type, as I look at my computer screen, I have to figure it out. I can't look away and start making notes. That that doesn't happen. I'll lose the flow of the story if that happens. Yeah. But so what I do. In, the, in this particular case, what I did was decide that what Arthur needs to do is to go back to town where his brother's girlfriend is waiting for him. So he decides to become his brother. Mm-hmm. For him, it's natural. He's been doing that his whole life. 
Yeah. When, it's, whenever his brother got in trouble, he took the blame for it. Yeah. Now the reader already knows that because that's a prior scene. So it, it will feel fairly natural for the reader to believe that this guy has got the hoofsta to go ahead and go into his brother's apartment and say, hey, love, I'm home. Give her a hug. And the hug turns out to more. How can he do that? How can he have sex with his brother's girlfriend? Isn't that rape? Well, yeah, that's one of the difficult themes that the book covers, yeah. and, and he yeah, doesn't think of it as rape. No, he doesn't. And so as, as an author, I'm thinking, what the hell is he thinking about? Why is he doing this? Yeah. But I, you know, I, I'm in the story, and I'm in charge of the story. <laughs> I just don't know where it's going. So I mm -hmm. keep on going. And if you read the rest of book one, you'll see that he's still doing what he's been doing all his life. He's pretending to be somebody that he's not. It's hide and be all over again. Yeah. And, and he has, close, yeah, in the end, he has the two girls, Rosie and Marcella, like his own his own girl and his brother's girl, you know, both trying to juggle them at, at one point. Yes, and Marcella in San Diego, that's Arthur's girlfriend, she keeps saying, well, when am I going to get to meet your twin brother? You've told me so much about him. And and this, this girl, what did you tell her name was? Rosie? Ah, Rosie. I'd like to meet Rosie. Let's, why don't we go to Maine and meet your brother and his girlfriend? Well, now he's in, now he's in trouble because mm -hmm. he's got to have an answer for that. And I'm the author. I don't have an answer for that. <laughs> so what I do is I just wait it out. I keep typing. Mm -hmm. I keep creating as I'm going because it's coming to me. Well, you know, maybe what he's going to do here is string her out a little bit, and he does. Uh, but he 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 feels he a, a stronger obligation to Rosie back in Maine than he does to Marcella down there in San Diego. That's three thousand miles away, and he has to find ways to make this pretense, this pretending, this hiding, and being his brother. He has to make it work in both cities. And as a, as a writer, when I get to that point, then I'm starting to think about crimes and other mischief. I spent yeah. my life in courtrooms. I'm a retired lawyer. Mm -hmm. I've tried cases like this one over the years. So I use some of those skills to, to make this story realistic uh, to make it credible, it's it's utter bullshit. I'm making it up as I go, fast as I can. But I've got to convince my reader that this story is plausible. Mm, yeah. Not, not real, but it has to be plausible. I, I can't make him fly to the moon. This is not science fiction. But I can make him do things that a man so troubled so wounded as a young child, and then the, the biggest wound of all, he loses his brother. And for a long time, 
He thinks he killed his brother. He was he was driving the boat. He hit the big rock in the middle of the storm. He shouldn't have done that. He should have been able to get around that rock. He feels guilt. He starts to hate himself and love his brother even more. How do you, how would you do that if you loved your brother more than you did yourself? Hey, why don't you become your brother? Be your brother. Yeah. But not in San Diego. In San Diego, he's himself. And he lives a dual life then for a, for, for yeah. a while. Yeah. And, and I can remember as an author when this quagmire, this terrible reality becomes clear and I'm saying to myself, how am I going to get out of this? <laughs> You're trapped. Uh, so, so, so I'm playing the role of Arthur as I write about Arthur when he's in San Diego with his other girlfriend. Now he has two. One in Maine who thinks he's Martin and one in San Diego who thinks he's Arthur. How does he get out of this? That's when he figures out that, well, these are reasonably well-educated young boys. We have the same DNA. It's identical. Yeah. No one can tell us apart from a DNA perspective. So if Arthur dies in San Diego, maybe the brother's DNA from Maine can be brought here. And so he does. He brings his brother's body to California, down into Mexico, sets the fire, the body burns up, but enough of it stays. And so the, the cops and everybody else is all convinced that Arthur died in Mexico. Yeah. He can now go back to Maine and be Martin safely because Arthur is dead. Except, of course, that Arthur isn't dead. Yeah. Uh, so writing this book was a, an enormous lot of fun. I would say so, yeah. You've yeah. got a bit of... It's a darker version of the comedy of errors, you know? You've got the two kind of twins, and, and this is uh, what can happen in that circumstance in the darkest possible way. Yeah. Let me ask you something. Does he... You know, is this a clever guy saying, okay... I can get away with things and pretend to be my twin. Or is this, you know, a vulnerable, hurt person whose twin has died? He hasn't had the easiest upbringing. And, you know, this is his coping mechanism. And he's genuinely deluded in these moments. Because it's very convenient to say, in the second book, for example, when other murders are happening and he's suspected of them, it's very convenient to keep saying, oh, you got the wrong guy. I'm Martin. Now I'm Arthur. You know. Is yeah. this a deliberate thing, or do we re do we believe him? You're you're absolutely making my day today. <laughs> you're doing exactly what I hoped the reader would do. Good. As the reader turns the pages, he's starting to think, "Well, what is this guy? Is he just clever, or or, or is he a mean, bad person?" Because he's blaming things now on Martin back there and taking advantage of being Arthur out here. And the reader has to be wondering, I'm thinking as I'm writing, 
the reader has to be wondering, well, what, what is his real motive here? Is it to, to continue to live like his brother because it's fun? Mm. Or is it other, a deeper responsibility? Does he really owe this? And so is he traumatized or is he just having the time of his life? And we find ourselves doing the work of Dr. Socorro to an extent and trying to, to do the evaluation mm-hmm. and, and figure mm-hmm. this guy out, you know. Well, Dr. Socorro is the saving grace in this book because I got to a point in book one where I couldn't really think about where, where I'm going to go as a writer, but I've represented a lot of doctors and a lot of psychiatrists at Arizona over my life, over my life as a lawyer. So I created a psychiatrist and put her in the book as the person who's going to solve the problem, the legal problem for the court system. Mm-hmm. Because now she's got a judge that's really ticked off. He's appointed her to figure out whether Arthur is telling the truth, he is Arthur Cheshire, or is he lying to everybody and he's actually Martin Cheshire. Her job is to figure that out. So she takes that role on without ever done anything like this in her life before. That's because I don't think anybody else has ever invented this ridiculous Mm. reality before. I imagine not. And so she becomes a much more leading character, a stronger character. So she she's stronger than the lawyers. She's stronger than the judge. She's stronger than the jailers. And she's much smarter than Arthur. Yeah. Oh, uh, and so the dialogue between the psychiatrist and the prisoner becomes more of a dialogue, more of a of an interchange of ideas, and she starts convincing him that he needs to uh, come out from under the covers and tell me the truth. And he eventually does, but he's doing it reluctantly because he's still trying to protect his brother, who's dead. And no one knows his brother's dead because they haven't told anybody about the death, the, the accident, the voting accident. Mm-hmm. So the more I write, the more complicated this book gets. And from my perspective, I'm happy as a pig. I mm-hmm. love complication. Yeah. I love unknowing. The fact that the judge has to say to the prosecutor in the case, this is a federal criminal case, he says to the prosecutor, who are you prosecuting? And he says, well, we're prosecuting uh, Arthur Cheshire. Well, point to him. Well, where is he? Is he in the courtroom? So the prosecutor points to him and said, yes, he's the defendant. His name is Arthur Cheshire. And then he turns to the defense lawyer and he says to the defense lawyer, who's your client? My client is Arthur Cheshire. Well, is he here in court? Yes, he is. He's sitting right here. Well, that can't be because the charging documents are against Martin Cheshire, not Arthur Cheshire. So it creates a gigantic problem for the judge. And the judge says to both lawyers, look, I'm not taking one more time in the courtroom here. You guys go away and you figure out who you're representing and who you're representing. And it can't be the same guy. 
I've been in those kinds of courtroom situations where the two lawyers are so far apart that the judge has to bring us together by identifying a single problem. Who do you represent? It's not the same guy. Don't come back in here and tell me it's the same guy. It's the same guy. I think I have more sympathy for him in the first book than in the second book when other murders start happening. Then there's that little turn towards, okay, maybe he is a bad guy, but we still don't know what's going on in his mind and we still don't know how it's all justified. Um, But I don't want to kind of give too many spoilers either. Um, Why don't you tell us where we can get the book if you want to plug your website or anything like that? Absolutely, sure. Uh, You can get it on Amazon.com. Uh, in this country, I don't know how they really do. They have bookstores in England. You yeah, of course. Of course, bookstores, <laughs> bookstores are what? some of my favorite places. <laughs> well, there are not very many bookstores left in America. Oh. The reality is that the the seller of all books is Amazon. It's Amazon. Yeah, it's probably still so the biggest my, one here too now. My books, both of these two books, are up on Amazon. They're ready for sale. They're, they're in the pre-sale mode right now. You can order it. It's not going to be delivered till February 6th. That's not my idea. That's the idea of a really good publicist. Mm. She said, let's wait until February. Let's see if we can get some interest in your book. Uh, maybe we could get the Books Boys in England. Maybe they'd be interested. So mm. We were indeed. That's how you got here. But my, my sense is that as this book comes out, uh, as more uh, reviewers get a chance to read it, as more people like you who not only read, read it, but wondered about it uh, and had the, did me the great favor uh, of letting me talk to you on your podcast. Oh, it's absolutely um, our pleasure. And we have one uh Trick question before I let you go. We ask all the authors that call in and um, before we let them go, if there's one existing book that you wish you had been the person to write, what would it be? Well, uh, my favorite author is Irving Stone. And he wrote a, a number of books uh, all about Famous, famous people. His, his titles are all nonfiction books. Okay, okay. Uh, and so, uh, Adversary in the House is his book that I enjoyed the most. Uh, in fiction, uh, you know, I think there's so many good fiction writers today uh, that I read that I really don't have a, a favorite. I like John Grisham. I was going to ask your opinion on John Grisham, the the most probably the most best known um, legal, you know, and you, with you having a legal background as well, a legal writer. Well, the reason I like John Grisham's fiction is because he was not just a lawyer, but a damn good lawyer, mm. and he tried some important cases, and I can see it in his writing. He wasn't the, your average one of the male lawyer. He was sought after. He didn't do it as long as I did. I was a full-time lawyer for, well, 
next week. I'm resigning my license. I'm turning oh. it over to the bar. I'm retiring next week. Wow. So that's, that's 56 years for me. He didn't last that long. <laughs> 56 uh, years. I think you've served your time a, admirably. <laughs> when he writes stories about that have legal subjects, and many of them, in fact, probably most of them do, uh, all of this shows up. So it's the same thing in my book. Whether I'm writing a, a fiction story like these, or a legal story, or some other nonfiction story, I've got lawyers and judges and courtrooms and witnesses. Mm-hmm. Because that was a, such a big world for me. But in 1994, I wrote my first book. It was a legal textbook. It's actually available today, but I advise any, everybody, don't buy this. <laughs> it is wrong at every level. Oh. All the rules have changed so much, so I tell people not to buy it. But Grisham uh, has created an industry out of placing his books in legal settings, and some of his characters are either lawyers or defendants or victims, uh, and, and he makes that all work. So I've read, I think, everything he's ever written. Uh, and I don't really uh, have a particular favorite because I keep changing. Mm. So my favorite is whatever his last book Whatever is. the newest one is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, Gary, thank you so much for calling into the show. It's been a pleasure, been a pleasure talking to you. And enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you very much. I, I enjoyed it today. All right, fantastic. Well, we were just talking about the uh, books there, so it's very good that the author would call in. Um, so hide and be, and um, my brother and myself. Thanks very much, and we'll put the link, of course, in the show notes. Uh, and that is the last of the two books that I have read. I don't think I've got anything else. Do you know yet what you will read next month? I will hopefully be starting uh, Narciss and Goldmund that uh, PJ says is one of his favorite books of all time. Mm-hmm. And even Kieran, his father, recommended the same. Yeah. So, cool. Um, I have it already. So Good. I think I'm going to start with a Thackeray. And it's usually hit or miss, I feel. Yeah. I have one more Dumas. I kind of feel like just doing it and then I can put Dumas aside for a while. We've got Balzac put aside. Uh, This will be Thackeray put aside. I do have one or two more Wilkie Collins, Collins, but I I do want to move on and actually do some some new stuff. So I'll see how I go throughout the month, but definitely starting with Thackeray. So what you do is you get a dartboard or, well, you get a map and some darts. You throw the darts and wherever it lands, you do the most famous author from that country. Mm, that would be interesting. But then I have to buy the books, you see. I, I'm very stingy. So, you guys, you can actually help us buy the books by going to patreon.com slash booksboys and signing up for our bonus shows. You can actually just make a one-off donation there as well. And you can also just take booksboys at hotmail.com and pop that into your PayPal and, and send us some money there as well. But no one's done that. <laughs> and some book recommendations wouldn't hurt either. We would love some recommendations, especially if you're going to give us the money to pay for them. That's the oh, best, yes, best yes. thing of all. You can pay us to read those books. <laughs> yeah. Uh, of course, on Books Boys, that is one of the tiers on Patreon that you can make a recommendation. Um, some of the higher tiers you get, some t-shirts and things as well. But you can also buy a t-shirt on booksboys.com if you scroll down to the bottom. And um, while you're on there, there's some links to music and things like that. And I do have a new album coming out in about two weeks. Because um, back in 2021, 
We released two albums. I did a compilation of songs that I'd done with PJ uh, over a decade, and we called it a decade of friendship. And then I also did a compilation of songs I'd made myself called The Dozen Most Listenable. Um, <laughs> so I'm now releasing A Dozen More, which is a very disparaging title. Uh, more, you know, because it's like, here's the, the least bad, and now here's some more. <laughs> um, there's one song with PJ on there. There's one song with Craig. There's a few of my old outtakes, and then there's also a few new songs, which I do think are quite some of the better ones. So it works out quite a good album in the end, and that's coming out around the 10th or 14th of January on Spotify and Amazon and, and all the other things. So check out all the stuff there, and if you want to get in touch, of course, booksboysathotmail.com. But that's us. Thank you to the author, Gary Stewart, for calling in to talk about his wonderful books. We had a great time chatting with him. Thank you to Alfred for getting up to various shenanigans in his antlers during the show i'm worried about the curvature of the bones in his back but um, he's just been looking at your artwork this entire time yeah uh, i'm happy he's just that. been uh admiring it yeah i do have this whole wall of artwork beside us here so he's looking at that hmm. uh, i'm worried though that there's some naked ladies included there and i want to make sure he's not getting any any wrong ideas uh, alfred be a good boy <laughs> Thank you to Alex, of course, for joining us. And thank you to this audio setup for maybe working. Hopefully it worked. Hopefully the quality has been good. Otherwise, we have an hour and ten minutes to read <laughs> Yes, hopefully this is good, because then we can focus on doing the Cyclops. Go check that out. Booksboys.com, etc., etc. And we're going to close this month's episode with a weird punk version of Once in Royal David City that I did many years ago. And that is it. So if the DJ would spin that record... We'll be back in about a month. Boy. I was I was waiting for the boy. <laughs> Once in Royal David City stood a lowly cattle shed Where a mother laid a baby in a manger for his bed Mary was that mother mild, Jesus Christ her little child he came down to work from heaven, who was God and Lord of all. And his shelter was a stable, and his cradle was a stall. With the poor and meek and lowly lived on earth, our Savior holy. And through all his wondrous childhood, he would honor and obey. Love and watch the lowly maiden in whose gentle lot he lay. Christian children all must be mild, obedient, and good as he. Forty years our child was patterned day by day like as he grew. He was little weak and helpless, tears and smiles like as he knew. And he feeleth for our sadness and he shareth in our gladness. And the rise at last shall see him through his own redeeming love. For the child so dear and gentle is our Lord in heaven above. And he leads his children on to the place where he is God. Not in a poor lowly stable with the oxen standing by We shall see him put in heaven, setting God's right hand on high Where like stars is cheering crowned, all in white shall we gather round
Books Boys was presented by The Dean and Playboy Alex in association with Thaddeus Penguin Productions. This episode was brought to you by our sponsor, MagicMind.com. If you would like to get in touch, you can email us at booksboys at hotmail.com or visit us at booksboys.com. The intro uses Driving in the 70s from the Of Soundtracks and Garage Bands EP by Trapdoor. And the outro uses Dog's Light by Bravo Max from the album of the same name. All music used is either pod safe or used with permission. If you'd like to support the show, go to patreon.com slash booksboys, get the show early, and all of our bonus booth fan the boys shows. And you can also check out our music on Spotify or Apple Music. Thank you kindly for listening to us. Please tell your friends and come back next time for another episode of Books Boys. Read some books! Welcome to Books Boys. How's everyone doing today? I'm gonna talk like this because I'm gonna get animated. I don't know what I should be doing. Um, hey, Dean! <laughs> well, this is airing exactly as it is. <laughs> and, um... and Alex? <laughs> Alex is also here. Rude. <laughs>